I'm Meg Dahl, your unbreakable host. Welcome to the show. a brand new episode of the Unbreakable You podcast. It's Meg here as always and we have a full episode for you this week. So my friend Sarah who as we share in the show her and I met blogging years and years ago. She's amazing and we have so much in common And um, just recently, at the beginning of this year, she actually had excision surgery for endometriosis. And I really wanted her to come on the show because we've never actually had a full-on episode dedicated to endometriosis. And it's something so many women deal with. And I really wanted her to share her story with you all so we could all learn from her experiences. And just, I know so many of you are going to be able to relate to Sarah's story. And just, I guess that's like a side note too. Back in March of this year, I had a emergency room scare I guess like I Scott and my parents had to call 911 I was rushed off to emergency if you want the whole scoop on that you can just scroll back to one of the episodes I released back in March because I share my whole like situation there but basically I have like this navel orange sized cyst next to my right ovary and it's causing me a lot of issues so I guess this conversation with Sarah too um it's basically like two friends sitting down and just sharing real life um health struggles and I share and open up about some of the stuff that I'm going through right now a few of my doctors suspect that I also am dealing with endometriosis But as Sarah and I talk about in the show, it's not the easiest thing to diagnose and you actually have to like go in and see if endo is actually present. It's not just like something as simple as a ultrasound or an MRI, which I have had done. So anyways, I hope you enjoy this chat. Like I said, I'm just so happy to have Sarah here on the show sharing her story because I know it will help so many of you or at least just kind of open your eyes to maybe something that um, you've never heard of before. I'm sure some of you are going to definitely relate to some of the symptoms and things that we share in this episode. But anyways, um, something I did want to also share before we dive into the conversation with Sarah today is that um, actually Sarah even touched on this at the very end of the show, how tracking like symptoms and things throughout your cycle can be really, really helpful. And 
Tara and I actually talked about that last week as well. We talked about cycle tracking and how her and I both track our cycles and Tara mentioned that she uses just like a pen and paper and I use my period tracking app that comes along with like my Garmin watch. Anyways, I was getting tons of messages from you all and it sounds like a lot of you and I know this even from like the clients that I work with, not all of my clients are actually tracking their cycles until we start working together and it's often something that comes up in at least one of our sessions and then I introduce them to that. So anyways, um, I realized that so many women actually don't track their cycles and I thought I could create a resource for you to help you track your cycles if you don't want to be downloading an app and like be on your phone and using an app to track your cycle. I really liked the pen and paper idea. I thought that was really cool and so I actually created a cycle tracker that you will be able to download load this coming Sunday. So I'm sending it out in an email to all of my newsletter subscribers this Sunday. So if you're not already on my newsletter, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for my newsletter. You can choose any freebie you want. I have like a inner child healing journey, a morning meditation, a compassion journal. I have so many good free resources for you to sign up and download. And then, like I said, on this Sunday, this coming Sunday, which is, let me pull up the date. That means it is Sunday, November 20th, 2022. I will be sending it out in an email. And if you are listening to this episode after the fact, then I will have just like a separate link for you to sign up for that cycle tracker and you can just download it right on the spot. So that's all from me. I'm going to wrap this up because like I said, we have a full episode with Sarah today and I will be, I will be back next week. I have been on calls with clients all day and I apparently cannot talk, but I will be back next week and you all enjoy this episode. Hi Sarah, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to finally have you on today. I feel like, I guess both of us have busy schedules, but I feel like every time we've had something on the calendar before, we've been kind of like rescheduling and stuff. So it's nice to be finally sitting down with you. Yeah, I'm super excited that we have made this align finally. Yay! Well, we have a really great episode that I'm really looking forward to today, Um, kind of diving into your journey with endometriosis and just like all things cycle health and stuff like that. So very excited to have you on because as you just shared with me, you actually haven't, I mean, you have your own podcast and have covered all of this on your own podcast, but you actually haven't like come on to another podcast to share your health journey before. 
Yeah, I have a podcast episode specifically around my whole endometriosis journey. Um, But other than that, I haven't ever spoken about it on another platform outside of my podcast or like Instagram. Which you have so much content, like both on your podcast and Instagram. And we'll obviously get into all of this, but just when you were sharing a lot of your story initially, um, I was just gobbling it all up because I'm kind of at the point in my health journey where the doctors are thinking this is what I'm dealing with, but nothing has been confirmed. So I have just been really enjoying and just... I I super appreciate you being so open and transparent about your journey too. Yeah, I know we've talked a little bit about like your current experience and it's just, it's a long process to figure out what's going on, whether it is endometriosis or not. So yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing here and having this conversation. All right. So you and I have known each other for many, many years, many years. We go way, way (laughs) back blog friends when the best type of friends. Yes, exactly. We have never actually met in real life before, which is so strange. So strange. We need to make it happen, but Someday, obviously. But why don't you share with everyone a little bit more about you before we dive into the good old health stuff that we've been talking about? Yes. So hi, I'm Sarah. I am a certified personal trainer and certified sports nutritionist. I have my own business where I coach individuals, um, primarily mountain loving endurance humans and enthusiasts um, around strength and nutrition. And I currently live in the Mount Washington Valley area of New Hampshire. And I moved here back in 2019. Um, originally I'm from the seacoast of New Hampshire. So just a couple hours, uh, south from here, but, um, I'm a big hiker as you might guess, cause I work with those types of humans and the mountains really drew me in after graduating Um, from my undergraduate, I went to the university of New Hampshire where I studied psychology, neuroscience and nutrition. So I always say I'm a little bit of a self self proclaimed Jill of all trades. I love it so much. And when did you really get into hiking? Like, has this always been a really big passion of yours or when, when did you really get into it? Yeah. So, um, growing up, we went camping most weekends in the summer and fall. My parents were super into that. So I had the exposure of being outdoors since early childhood. And with that, we additionally had gone on like a couple of smaller hikes, um, really family friendly when I was growing up. So I did know that, you know, I liked hiking, but it wasn't until 2016 that I really dove on into it. A a friend of mine back on the seacoast who I had been babysitting for her family invited me to join her on uh, Mount Liberty and Mount Flume, which is a like nine, nine and a half mile hike up here in the White Mountains. And I remember thinking, well, she's like twice my age, so I can totally handle this because at that point I hadn't really been doing that much endurance related um, activity. And so I went along with her and then the following weekend, I joined a friend who was also big into hiking and it kind of just took off from there. Wow. 
I love that. So let's talk like period stuff now. I am curious kind of like your whole period history. When did you first get your period and what was it like when you first got your period for the first time? Um, so I got my period around age 12 and I remember like they were just terrible from the get-go. I would miss school. I was super crampy. Um, I, at that time had a lot of digestive symptoms, but also experienced an eating disorder, which we can get into. And that was kind of co-occurring at that time. So it was kind of complicated to really piece out which symptom was associated, which with which thing. Um, but yeah, my period started around age 12. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned an eating disorder and I know this is something that obviously you and I have talked about a lot in our past. Um, so do you want to share a little bit more about that with everyone? And I also think it's important and I love how you shared, you know, you were experiencing these maybe like digestive issues and other symptoms and, Maybe they were related to hormone stuff, or maybe they were more so eating disorder related, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I began to develop my eating disorder around age 11, which was primarily anorexia. And so that timeline really did, like I said, co-occur with then period onset. And then what I would say now was really dealing with endometriosis from that point. So age 12. Um, and it just takes so long, but those two really throughout middle school and high school and college was just this continual evolution, if you will, to figure out what's going on and what symptoms are, which, and there was definitely, you know, overlap for sure with symptoms, but also, especially as I was able to get out of my eating disorder and into that recovery, or as I like to say, remission process, really being able to say, this is this entity and this is this entity and having to learn to speak up for myself as well, especially in like the medical community and working with practitioners to say, this isn't that because it was often blamed on the eating disorder, especially digestive symptoms, even years after being out of treatment, being weight restored and whatnot. And having to say there's something else going on. Wow. Okay. So basically, um, and I know one of like a big symptom for you is the digestive issues, right? So basically what you're saying is you had fully recovered from the eating disorder stuff years later, still Mm -hmm. dealing with issues. And maybe you're like sitting in a doctor's office or seeing a specialist and they're still trying to kind of like place the blame on the eating disorder. And you're like, wait a sec. No, like, yeah, this is not (laughs) what's going on. Like there has to be something else happening here. Yeah. Like they had done, I mean, fast, fast forward. So eating disorder started when I was 11. I'm 29 for reference. So there's been some time. Um, but in 20, so I was 11, probably in like 2005, 2006 time. That's my really quick math. And, um, so 2015 ish, I had ended up doing a workup for Crohn's because my father has Crohn's. They were kind of questioning, could that be going on? I was just having a ton of 
very extreme bloating, IBS-like symptoms, a lot of pain, but it seemed very digestive specific. And so they, like I said, did a workup for Crohn's. So I had a colonoscopy. I ended up actually having two because the first one they couldn't get through, um, which by the way, that's not really common. So who knows? Just a side note. <laughs> Just yeah. a side note. Um, but yeah, so they had done all of this workup around gastrointestinal related symptoms and pretty much were like, it's probably IBS. Your body is most likely still trying to figure out how to, you know, assimilate and digest nutrients after your eating disorder. And we don't really know what to do with you. Over the years, my symptoms just got worse. At that point, I didn't have many specific symptoms to the menstrual cycle. Um, I had lost my cycle 2011 until 2014 after coming off of birth control. So I'd gone on birth control very soon after I began my period when I was 12 and then stayed on it until my senior year of high school. Came off of it May of 2011, which is my senior year. And I remember that I was terrified I was going to get it at graduation with that white gown and it didn't come. So then I ended up getting it back in February of 2014. And so at first it was like every 28 days, no cramps, nothing. It was perfect. And I was like, okay, well, we could do this. This is great. And over time, it just got worse. So the digestive symptoms were always there, but once my period came back, so that was kind of a hypothalamic amenorrhea situation, the symptoms related to the cycle progressively got worse over time. And so it became kind of this, okay, maybe there's something else going on here. And I had first just gone back to consult with my regular gynecologist, if you will, and was essentially told, well, we can go back on some type of hormonal birth control or an IUD, one of those options. And given my past experience with it, I just didn't feel comfortable for that and my body. And I think intuitively I knew that something else was going on because it just didn't make sense to me. And so over the years, I just kept trying to figure out what's going on, what's going on, eventually gave up for a bit because navigating the medical system is a headache. And I know that you can, can resonate with that. I even like, I mean, obviously, and you know, this, I resonate to so many different parts of your story, but one thing that stood out to me specifically was like, so I also didn't have my period like hypothalamic amenorrhea post and due to an eating disorder but like even afterwards for so many years right so from about um 20 2007 till 2019 and so at like prior to that I really didn't have much for symptoms from my period and then after I got it back I felt like you know it I was like crampy and stuff like that but it wasn't anything like terrible and also I hadn't had my period for over a decade so it was like oh you know kind of like getting adjusted to things again and I don't know, like I hadn't experienced that in so many years, you know? And so I was just kind of like giving myself time for things to 
hopefully kind of balance out, even out, that sort of thing. And just like you shared, things just kind of progressively got worse as far as symptoms go. Yeah. So one way, and I, I'm assuming this is true. It's never been explained to me by any other provider, but when I first consulted with the doctor that ended up doing my laparoscopic surgery and going over all of my history, he wasn't exactly surprised that I didn't have like pretty much any symptoms with my period. Um, when I got my period back after that period of not having it. And the way that he had explained it was when you have hypothalamic amenorrhea or you're not getting a cycle, your body almost goes back to either like pre-puberty or like into a menopausal state. So there's not a lot going on. And where endometriosis is a disease that has a lot with hormonal profiles, when you're not having that, it can almost like shrink or it's just not going to be as proliferative and it's not going to be asymptomatic. And so he really made sense of that and was able to explain to me that that would make sense and that it is probably endometriosis. My gyno said the exact same thing to me. Like I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. Basically, you're not, you know, we had zero hormones, essentially. Yeah, there's um, like nothing going on down yeah, there. Nothing's happening when you have HA. And then you recover, your hormones are like thriving and doing what they need to be doing. But then, um, you know, if you're dealing with something like endometriosis, well, those symptoms are going to show up. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I haven't ever done like a endo specific podcast episode before. So before we actually dive into endo and like that part of your journey specifically, do you want to kind of like give everyone a rundown or a description of like what endometriosis actually is? Yes. So my best understanding, and of course, research is always happening and there needs to be a lot more research on endometriosis as well. Um, but it is really characterized as an inflammatory condition and it is where cells that are similar to the lining of the uterus of the endometrium, but they are not the same as, so under a microscope, they are histologically different. However, they are very similar. Those cells end up growing outside of the uterus. So they can be on places such as the outside of the uterus, the fallopian tubes, the ovaries, um, other places such as the bladder, bowels. Um, They can be extra pelvic. So they're outside of the pelvic cavity. Um, They have been found in places such as the diaphragm, thoracic cavity, and elsewhere. So to my knowledge, they're not exactly still sure what's causing this. There are a couple working theories, which I don't have the knowledge to really get into, but it is cells that are like the endometrial lining, pretty much placing themselves out elsewhere, growing and creating inflammation and kind of this like scar tissue, like structure, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when did endometriosis kind of like come into your sight? Of like yes. maybe thinking, okay, is this what I'm dealing with? Or, you know, when did you maybe first hear about it and feel like, like or when, when you did first hear about it, did you resonate with it? 
right away or kind of like what was that like for you? Yeah. So back to that kind of GI workup and then being like, okay, maybe something's going on with my period where those symptoms started to kind of crop back up and then consulting with my, I say regular gynecologist because technically my surgeon is a gynecologist as well. So I'm like, how many gynecologists can one person have? Anyways, so when I had consulted with the the gynecologist that I had worked with since the onset of my cycle, um, she had mentioned, you know, we could go back on birth control, not really sure these are kind of your options. And I was like, no. And at that point I had been through a lot of workups and I was just kind of over dealing with the medical system. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm good with pain. I have a high pain tolerance. Let's just continue to, to do this and see what happens. And at that point, I was also now at the University of New Hampshire and in my undergraduate. And I just wanted to focus on that part of my life and not be in and out of doctor's offices. And so a couple of years after that, things progressively were getting worse at that point. And it had gone from really cyclical pain or the onset of my cycle and during my cycle to that time and also during ovulation which took a little bit to figure out that that was what's going on because I wasn't on any form of birth control. So to really figure out this is my cycle, this is when I'm ovulating, this is when I'm bleeding, that took a little time. And then to daily symptoms, I would say probably when it started being ovulation and my cycle is when the endometriosis theory started to come into play because my periods just got so bad. Like there were ones where I would be on my couch, having hot flashes, having cold spells, like throwing up, having diarrhea. Like my mother was just like, you look as if you are in labor. This is not normal. And so at that point I went back to my gynecologist and then she had said endometriosis might be what's going on. Okay. And at that point, like, did you know anything about endo? No. Okay. So this was something totally new to you. Yeah. Yeah. And so many women are dealing with it. So many. I mean, it's... Yeah. And it's not something we hear about a lot unless, you know, maybe if our friends have it, then we're hearing about it, but it's not really something you know, that is first brought up when we're dealing with all of these issues like you were. Yeah. And I mean, they're saying that one in 10 women have endometriosis, which I mean, my humble opinion is it's probably more because we are just normalizing pain and period pain. Right. but like, And not everybody has like access to care and all of that. So I would assume it's probably more like, I don't know, one in seven, one in eight. That's my my completely non-educated just biased opinion but yeah so that's your opinion but like the stats are one in ten so even taking that like that's super high and for so many people to not know what it is or haven't heard about it before or you know the doctors aren't bringing it up or just like the lack of research around this and also how difficult it is to actually find a doctor who is well-versed in endometriosis, Mm -hmm. you know, like for an example, and I think I'd like for you to talk about this as well, but, um, 
Okay, so with endometriosis, there is actually only one way to officially diagnose it properly. Mm. Yeah. And that is through laparoscopy. Yeah. Yes. Whereas, like, so many women who maybe think that they have endo, their doctors are, like, sending them off to ultrasounds and MRIs and things like that. And my doctor (laughs) said he's never seen it show up on an ultrasound or an MRI. So, you know, it's just, like, very unlikely to actually be able to diagnose it that way. Yeah, I know. Um, I guess if you have chocolate cysts, which are a type of cyst that can occur, especially in stage three and stage four of endometriosis, sometimes those will show up. And occasionally on a pelvic MRI with contrast, they're able to see it as well, especially if there's like larger masses. So it's kind of changing the anatomy, but Mine didn't show on anything other than during surgery. Right. And me saying that, like, my doctor has never seen it show up on an MRI isn't me saying, like, it never happens, but that's just how unlikely it is. Exactly. To actually be able to see endometriosis on an MRI. And it just makes me so sad because so many women who don't know this, right? They're Mm -hmm. sitting in their doctor's office, they think, okay, I feel like I'm checking off all the boxes boxes for endometriosis. Their doctors send them off to an MRI. It comes back clear. And then they're like devastated or just like back to square one feeling yeah. like they are. They're like, because, oh, there's nothing like, wrong. It's all my head. I'm fine. But I don't, I don't feel fine. Like what's going on here? But you're not. So you need like to actually have laparoscopy done. Yeah. Like you did. So when did that kind of start to come into your story? Like how did, once you found out about endometriosis, walk us through that timeline of like, how long did that even take too? Because for a lot of women, I've heard like the stats on this, that it's like a 10 year, like the stats say that it takes like 10 years for the average woman to be diagnosed with endo. Yeah. So my timeline, it it definitely could have been a little shorter, but just based on health insurance and all of that, which I'll get into, it ended up being a little bit longer. Um, so once my doctor had started to bring up endometriosis, I of course started researching. I am a researcher at heart. I want to know all of the things. And I had found a couple of Facebook groups. I had a local pelvic floor physical therapist who was a really great resource um, to be able to provide some information, especially around the different types of surgery for endometriosis. So there's ablation, which is burning of the tissue, and there is excision, which is actually removing it. And that really is the gold standard. So I knew that if I was going to pursue surgery, which at that point, my gynecologist had not brought it up that I was going to want excision. So from the get-go, I kind of knew once I had looked into it, that that was the route that I wanted to go for myself and my experience. And once my gynecologist had brought up, maybe we should do a laparoscopy. 
at that point, she had said, you know, we could do it in the office because all gynecologists are able to do that. And at that point, I just wasn't ready. You know, I had been through so much and I was like, what if, what if it's not that though? Like, I, I don't want to go through this if that's not it. And I'm going to be told that I'm normal. Um, and so as time went on and again, symptoms were just getting worse, I decided, okay, I need to actually do something about this because I don't want this to be controlling my life long-term because it was getting fairly debilitating during certain times of my cycle and not just the day I got my period, which was how it had been for a while. And so at that point, I started looking into possibilities for different surgeons in the area. And I did find one in Massachusetts who I consulted with, and he pretty much agreed, yes, this sounds 100% like an endometriosis case. And at that point, I was going to be turning 26 in only a couple of months, which here in the United States, I was able to still be on my parents' health insurance until 26 and then bye. And so I did not feel comfortable getting it with only a couple months before losing health insurance because what if something happens? What if I need another surgery? There's so many what ifs that are involved. And so I didn't get surgery at that point. I was also, so this was 2019. I graduated from UNH May of 2019. I moved North October of 2019. I started my business August of 2019. I turned 26 June of 2019. It just wasn't the year for it at all. And I knew that. And I intended to establish myself, establish my business, find, you know, health insurance, all of that. And then maybe in 2020 have surgery, <laughs> which, which we I'll all just, know. I'll just what take a second. Yeah. <laughs> we don't even need to say anything no. else. Yeah. So, yeah. That didn't happen. Um, and so at that point, the insurance that I'm now on didn't take that previous provider who I'd found in Massachusetts. And so I knew that I needed to find somebody else. And thankfully there was a surgeon who practiced out of Brigham and women's hospital in Boston, however, had a satellite office in Stratum, New Hampshire. And so I was able to see him and he is a minimally invasive gynecologist who specializes in endometriosis excision. And when I met with him, probably end of 2021, like fall time, he agreed as well. This is what's sounding like what's going on. He was the one who explained kind of why HA would have led to a reduction in symptoms and then an increase and said, you know, yes, we can do surgery. We need to, you know, do an ultrasound and all of this first, just because really when you get to that point, they want to know if they can get any information ahead of time to give them an insight of, where it might be if they're able to see it because they pretty much know that that is what's going on, even though they don't technically know. And I had ended up telling him if we can do surgery before, I think I said April, I don't hundred percent remember then great. Otherwise we're tabling it until November because I love summer. I love hiking. I don't, I've already dealt with this for so long. 
I'm not taking myself out of it, but they ended up giving me a surgery date of March 8th, 2022. So we did the thing. So you've had surgery and it's so interesting to me because as you were like going through surgery and post-surgery, right? That whole time, March, 2022, that's when I had my whole incident that I was lying there March 1st in a hospital bed and, you know, I was blessed with one of these incredible nurses and she like closed the door and she was like, you know what, like I'm not really supposed to be in here talking to you and stuff, but she had shared with me that she had endometriosis and she was telling me like I'm not sure how much you know about it but she was telling me how long it took her to get diagnosed and she had seen me come in and like what I was dealing with and she's like honestly I feel like you know you're in the exact same position that I was a couple years ago and so she was like this is why I'm saying what I'm saying and she was basically like you need to do xyz like the doctor that I had in emerge wasn't wanting to give me an ultrasound and she was like you need to demand things you know and really like make sure you get these things so anyways long story short I just thought both of us going through things in March was really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, I could have definitely had the surgery years prior, but I'm also glad from a recovery perspective from my eating disorder that I didn't. And I think that that's, it's going to be personal for everybody, but it's something that I've been able to now reflect on. And I think that I was in a spot in 2022, where I felt very, very stable and very able to advocate for all of my needs and very supported in the entire process of having surgery. And I actually had had a colonoscopy in February because of all of my bowel symptoms. They needed to make sure that it wasn't, that endometriosis wasn't inside of the bowel because that can happen. Thankfully, it's not, but. Yeah. So it was just, it was a lot and I'm glad that I did wait. And so that, you know, if you're out there and you're experiencing this and you're being pressured to hop right into surgery, it is okay to wait. It's also okay to go through with it. It's really, it's up to you. Yeah. I think it's such a, like, I totally agree with you. I feel like you have to be mentally and emotionally and physically ready to mm-hmm. go into that and if you're not feeling that way it's like absolutely your right to speak up for yourself and make sure that you do end up getting surgery if that's what you choose to do at that time in your life where you are mentally emotionally and physically ready to go into something like that Yeah. And of course, you know, there's always going to be experiences of people that have, you know, insurance or et cetera. There's going to be things where it is more of a rush process or it has to be done during a certain period or doctor schedules like that can happen. But, you know, if you 
have the means to be able to really decide when for yourself, that's okay. And like, that is a permission slip that I will say that you have. Mm -hmm. Even if like the people around you don't fully understand, you know, why you're maybe not feeling ready for it or whatever. Um, yeah, you have that right to be that advocate for yourself. Yes. I feel like I talked a lot about that on the episode I did on my podcast is being your own advocate because it's so needed. Yeah. So even, I guess, going into that, like, what were some of the things that were really important for you that you did advocate for yourself on? So for me, I knew, like I had mentioned, kind of that time frame, if you will. I did not want to have surgery in those later spring months or summer or in the fall. Those months are just, one, I actually have less endometriosis symptoms. They're still there. They're still there daily, but they are less because of the endurance activity that I am doing. And I do find that it is more manageable during those months. And also I absolutely love summer and fall hiking and trail running. And I didn't want to take myself out of that for a year because I find so much joy in it. And that is really important for me as an overall human. And so that was a very firm boundary that I set and I'm thankful that he had a March date and I didn't need to wait till November, but that was one and really feeling that I had a stable living situation. So I moved up here in October, 2019 and then ended up moving again, June of 21, which was very unexpected landlord sold the house. Thank you. And so I wanted to make sure that that was stable before I hopped into something like this, you know, having a therapist, have amazing friends and family that are supportive of me and my choices and kind of all of those factors were really important. Yeah. And so how did you feel? Because obviously, like you said, you weren't ready back in like 2016 to have surgery. So how did you feel come March? knowing that you're going to have this surgery, like how are you feeling approaching it? Because I want to obviously get into what it was like, what was found, all that stuff. But yeah, how are you feeling like once it was kind of that time to have it? Yeah. So back in 2019, when I like wasn't, I mean, there was just so many things going on from graduating, moving, starting a business, turning 26, all of that. And the past couple of years, I mean, we've all learned a lot about ourselves and what we can tolerate and who just really developing like a nurturing community around us. I think that's been definitely something for me and, you know, a lot of my clients and I'm sure other people, maybe people listening can resonate with that. And so having that experience and then going into the first couple of months of 2022 or before surgery, really just, I think I was ready and I was ready on a body level and like a mind level to know what was going on. And I also really innately knew that it was endometriosis, but there was of course that little part in my brain because of all of the past experience that thought, what if it isn't? So that was definitely there. I mean, that was there 
the day that I went in for surgery. And I remember saying that to my surgeon before I went in and he was very assured that we were going to find it. So I think having that provider also acknowledge and not brush off my fear and say, oh, don't worry about it. Or, oh, that's not possible. I mean, of course it was possible, but just to really be giving me a space to have that and say, I don't think that's going to happen and we're going to do what we can for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I'm so happy that you found such a great gyno. So that makes me happy. Did you, Sarah, do anything specific to like support yourself going into surgery? Um, I mean, I feel like I'm usually fairly good at the, I don't know, self-care if you will. Um, so I think just having my usual practices and then really just giving myself permission to feel however I was going to feel mentally, physically, all of it, and allowing myself time to take space for whatever I was about to find out was really kind of a helpful mindset to have going into it. Yeah, for sure. So what did end up like, I know, but I want you to share with everyone. Okay. What was the result of the surgery? Yeah. So they ended up finding endometriosis and ended up being a two hour surgery, which when I woke up, I was definitely surprised by, they had thought it was going to be about an hour. So a little bit, a little bit longer, but yeah, they ended up finding it in places that now make a lot of sense for the symptoms that I was having and still do have some of. Um, so they found it around my appendix on my bladder that that one's actually big for me. So I'll get into that in a minute. Um, the posterior and anterior cul-de-sac, you can Google that, but essentially it's kind of the space that is between the bladder and uterus and uterus and rectum. Um, And then the uterosacral ligaments, which also was very eye-opening for me as well. Do you want to kind of like make sense for that or make sense of that (laughs) for all of us? Just, um, you know, in regards to how, where they found the endometriosis, how that was like showing up symptom-wise, just in case anyone listening to this, you know, has maybe like even like the slightest inkling that, oh, hey, I'm, you know, dealing with all of these kind of weird symptoms and maybe they're considering that they have endo, but also the thing that about endo that really has like back in March when I was in the hospital and then I started kind of going down this endometriosis rabbit hole, there was so many just random symptoms that mm-hmm. I have had that you know, I've explained over and over to people and everyone just kind of is like, oh, that's bizarre. Or I've never heard of that happening before, or I don't experience that, (laughs) you know, like I could go into a list and I'm sure we can like, you know, get into this stuff, like kind of the weirder, less common symptoms, but it was honestly so mind blowing to me how many like just very obscure kind of symptoms there were. But I do think what you're about to share with us, like where they actually found them and the endometriosis for you 
actually explains a lot of yours. Yeah. So the first one that I find interesting, if I'm just looking at my earlier experience was I had been in the ER a couple of times for what they thought or assumed might be appendicitis as I don't know, 12, 11, 12, 13 year old little Sarah and shocker. It was not appendicitis. I still have my appendix. And it was interesting to find out that there was endometriosis all around my appendix. And I would assume that that would be why I still do get a lot of that kind of lower pain, primarily on the right side. Um, so yeah, that's one. And then do you, Sarah, I'm just going to butt in. Do you get that mm -hmm. at any specific time of the month, like ovulation um, or period? That I would say is more ovulation until my period is done. Yeah. So that's kind of the bulk of my symptoms is like mid cycle until my period is done. So I had like a week and a half off. Yeah, same. <laughs> I was seriously <laughs> at the doctor on Tuesday. So like exactly a week ago uh, on Monday, I had woken up and I was in extreme pain where my appendix is. And you know, several people in my life were like, Meg, that sounds like appendicitis. You know, you should go see the doctor. And so I went to go see the doctor last week. And he was like, yeah, pretty sure that's all related to, you know, cyst stuff. Cause I do have a cyst on my right side, right next to my right ovary. And, um, also this potential endometriosis that we could be dealing with, he said. So, Interesting that you bring that up because I'm like, I literally was just at the doctor this week about that. <laughs> it's so wild. Um, just all of the different, different symptoms. Um, but yeah, otherwise bladder. So they had, I have it on my bladder or I had it on my bladder and I feel like I have a UTI. I still do. It's much more mild at this point. Um, but at the kind of height, if you will, of my endo symptoms, I would feel like I had a UTI for up to two weeks, really around ovulation. And so that makes sense that I had it on my bladder. So if you're having kind of UTI symptoms that are, I, I always say I have a fake UTI and yeah, especially like, like hiking, like I'm hiking. UTI that isn't an actual UTI. Exactly. Like it's very, very same symptoms. I would be hiking a lot and, you know, friends would be like, Sarah, why are you peeing every 20 minutes and like in excruciating pain? And I was like, oh yeah, I don't know. And then now I can say, oh, actually this is why. Um, but yeah, it was, it would be pretty rough some days. Jeez, and I have another question <laughs> for you regarding like kind of bladder symptoms yeah do you feel or have you had any like experiences in the past that maybe led you to believe that you were unable to like fully empty your bladder I had been told by doctors where I would say I have to go so often that I'm probably not emptying or to hold it and let me just tell you, if you feel like you have a UTI holding it, it leads to just this severe cramping in my entire abdomen everywhere. Like that's not going to happen. So I guess kind of having that experience with docs saying you're not 
probably emptying it. This was earlier in my life, so not in the recent years, but. I ask um, because I know, like I said, when I had gone down kind of that endometriosis rabbit hole, if you will, that was one of the symptoms that I had read about that was kind of a little bit different. That wasn't, you know, the typical ones you hear, just like excruciating pain, that sort of thing. And um, whenever I, you know, before you go to an ultrasound, they tell you, drink lots of water, you've got to come with a full bladder. And so I would drink a lot of water, I would walk into the ultrasound, and they would tell me to go to the washroom because I was too full. So I'm like, okay. So I let a little bit out, you know, I go back on the table. And they're like, you're still way too full. And at that point, it's like, okay, I feel like I'm not, you know, so I just kind of let everything out. And then I go back and they're like, perfect. And I'm like, to me, I feel like I am fully empty. Interesting. Yeah. So that's super interesting. I know it's, (sighs) yeah, very interesting to me. Okay. And moving on to some of the other places that they had found it, like Mm -hmm. anything else that you want to share that kind of, you know, ties into the symptoms and makes a lot of sense for you. Yeah. So the, the other big one for me is after every, so it started during, it would happen during my cycle and then it happened during ovulation in my cycle. And then it would be, it just kind of slowly grew into every single day. So, and this is still happening post-op. It's less, but it is still there. And it is definitely the symptom that I wished would have gone away because it is that daily thing. But after every single bowel movement, every single day of the month, I get extreme sacral pain. And it was on the uterosacral ligament. So the ligament connecting the uterus to the sacrum. So, okay. So that still one, pain every still day. pain. Yeah. Yeah. But overall, so everyone knows, like how reflecting back to the fact, okay, we got the surgery, we are still experiencing these symptoms, that sort of thing. How do you feel about having surgery? Like, what are your thoughts on that? How are mm-hmm. you feeling? Um, so I I would get it again, absolutely, to know what's going on, where it is to be able to make some sense of this experience in my body, because a lot of these symptoms, especially just like, you know, painful or back pain with bowel movements, that's not inherently something you would say, oh, that must be endometriosis. A lot of times, oh, you have IBS. So to be able to really make some sense of this was really helpful for me in order to I guess, validate my own experience for myself and to also really know and be proud of myself for trusting my gut and knowing that something was going on all of this time, even though it had been brushed off or blamed on IBS or blamed on my eating disorder by numerous providers. That was definitely a beneficial thing for me to experience. And my symptoms are less while I do still have them. They are reduced. And overall, the big one for me is my bowel movements in general are better. Like that function of my body is better because my guess is, you know, there's not this inflammatory tissue all around these organs. 
I still have pain, but overall, like it's easier. So yeah. So you said definitely benefits. Good. And you said like your symptoms overall, you know, they have been reduced. So have they been reduced in number or all of the symptoms are still there, but like the pain is maybe like instead of a 20 out of 10, it's maybe a five out of 10, that sort of thing. More of that. And they're not all daily anymore. So some of them are really just during kind of that ovulatory period or during my cycle or the week or the half of week kind of before my cycle. So less, less days of the month seem to be severely affected by symptoms. Well, I'm glad, you know, post-surgery, that's been your experience. Um, I mean, you know, in a quote-unquote, like, perfect world, obviously everything would be cleared up and you'd be symptom-free, but um, I'm glad that overall, you know, things have reduced for you. I would love for you to share with everyone, you know, what was, like, the post-surgery period of time like for you, just in case anyone listening right now actually is scheduled for surgery and maybe they're, you know, wondering, okay, I have no idea what to expect. Like, what is that kind of going to look for like for me? Yeah. So immediately post-op, you obviously are given a variety of pain medications, stool softeners, all these things. Take them, especially stool softeners. I mean, I'm not giving medical advice, but follow your own doctor. But I, it's helpful, especially I found just immediately post-op. Um, I ended up really not being in. I thought I would be in more pain post-op than I was. And I don't know if that's just my body, if that's that I was anticipating it and then it was less, if it's having had years of daily pain. So my tolerance was higher, but it definitely was not as bad as I anticipated. Honestly, the worst part was I got my period maybe a week post-op, which is apparently really not that common. So interesting, but that one was interesting because I was still on pain medication. So it actually, it was great. You're like, that was fine. Like the timing um, wasn't great, but it like overall wasn't that bad. <laughs> exactly. And the, the worst part of that is you're not allowed to use a tampon or anything inserted for, I think it's a month post-op. So I really invested heavily in the thanks underwear, which I would just promote in general, not Me sponsored, too. but they're great. I love girl. them. They're the best. Yeah. The period underwear game. It's nice. So definitely, you know, if you're going to have surgery, invest in some period underwear, whatever brand you would like, and know that everyone's experience immediately post-op is going to be different, but you are given tools to be able to mitigate pain to the best of your ability and really manage it. Um, And I think for me, one of the biggest fears I had because I have such issues with bowel movements was that I was going to get super constipated post-op and that did not happen. It took I don't remember, but I want to say three days to have a bowel movement post-op. And then at that point they became more and more normal over time. So it will take a little bit of time, but it's completely normal. And that was definitely my biggest, one of my biggest fears around that immediate post-op time period. And then I got back to 
just walking fairly quickly. I didn't throw any vertical gain in there. I wasn't climbing up mountains in the next week, but I was doing a lot of walks just around the dirt roads in my neighborhood. And it felt really nice, especially from a gas pain perspective, because they fill you up. So you have some gas pain, um, to just help that get out, get out of my system. Um, one thing people will talk about that I experience is a lot of shoulder and rib cage pain. Cause you have all these little gas bubbles just moving around, which is that's normal. Like, and they'll get out and movement can help them. So I would definitely, you know, invite if it feels good for somebody to easy movement, move around as long as it's okay, um, by their doctor. But that was definitely helpful for me to just get up, get outside, get some fresh air, get the gas bubbles moving around. I think that's not always talked about, but it's that a very really weird feeling. Yeah. And then yeah, I, I progressed really quickly and able like in getting back into like my day-to-day life. Um, you know, there's a restriction on lifting, I think it was over 10 pounds, which you don't realize how little that is until you can't like I I was nervous to lift my full trash can out and bring it to the dump, that type of thing. Um, so if you are able to have a friend stay with you, a family member or something, just in that first week or so can be really helpful. And then I ended up doing pelvic floor physical therapy, which I had done pre-op as well, which is something I would recommend if you are able to. How long just, were you doing it pre-op? I did it. I want to say two months, but it might've been three months. And that was helpful for me to just know that what was going on, where I was tight, get some relief pre-op. And then that way, when I went post-op, I already had a rapport with my pelvic floor physical therapist and trusted her to be able to do the work post-op. Um, and then post-op, I want to say it was 12 weeks of pelvic floor PT. Yeah. I bet that made a huge difference both pre and post. Yes. Right on. I recommend pelvic floor PT for everybody. Mm-hmm. But yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> I I think it's amazing too. So <laughs> okay. Let's speak to maybe the people that are having painful periods. They're not necessarily sure, you know, what is going on, but they know what they're dealing with isn't normal, even mm-hmm. though maybe it's quite common for them to feel these things. So what would you kind of suggest to these people? And maybe, you know, because not everything is endometriosis either. And so, you know, is there anything that maybe they should keep their eyes open for or, you know, kind of watch for or take notice of? I would say to start maybe a notebook or a journal or a log of your symptoms, your cycle, and start to figure out from there if there's any patterns, whether they might be ovulation, whether they might be during your cycle, and that will give you something to look at and also to take with you to a provider if you want to consult with you know, a primary care physician or a gynecologist. And because when you're in an appointment, it can be overwhelming to remember all of this. So having that can be really helpful. And then I would say, you know, consulting with primary care or gynecologists, I know some, depending on where you are, you might need a referral. So whatever that looks like for you and speaking to 
the fact that maybe you've done some research, you've heard about endometriosis or other conditions that could be causing these symptoms. And, you know, you're curious if this could be going on or, you know, is, is it potentially an okay time to like do a workup or an appropriate time? And if not, why? Like being able to ask why not, what's your recommendation? What do you think, you know, to your doctor would be going on? And if you find a provider that is really just closed off to the idea, if you have the means to find somebody else, get a second opinion, because I don't think that's uncommon. A hundred percent. Like I was going to kind of like say the same thing or add to that. And it might sound super, super obvious to like try to find a doctor that is familiar and well-educated in endo. I was referred initially to this one gynecologist and I had a horrible experience with her and she claimed to specialize in endometriosis and I went on Google and did all these searches about her and nowhere could I find that information that she was like a specialist in endometriosis and she was like the one that completely wrote me off and said there's no way that's what you're dealing with and to be clear like to this day I have not been diagnosed but now like working with doctors who actually are in the endo world and you know do the surgery on a daily basis like they have told me that they think that's what I'm dealing with you know so just kind of putting it out there that yeah if like your doctor just because they're a doctor doesn't mean that they know much about endometriosis So absolutely like getting that second opinion or, you know, doing your research and finding a doctor that is more well-versed in this world. Yeah, exactly. I just had a side note. I just had a different appointment with another gynecologist. I have three. It's a great time over in Portland, Maine, because something was found um, in a pre-op pelvic exam that needed assessment. But so she's another gynecologist and we were chatting about how I have endometriosis and I appreciated that she made a comment that when in residency, um, she had been living with a lot of other gynecologist residents um, who were doing the minimally invasive surgery and they were talking about endometriosis and she had mentioned how just that is so helpful for so many people to really have a provider that is able to really know endo. And she also was like, I don't. And so I just really appreciated having a gynecologist say that. To just like own up and be like, Hey, this is not my specialty. You know, she's like, this is my specialty and that is not. And so I just really appreciated that. But that's just kind of to say that just because somebody is a gynecologist does not mean they'll have like some understanding or like know what it is, hopefully, but that does not mean that they're a specialist. Right. Yeah. Like the or endometriosis. Went, yeah. Like the one that I went to go see, she was like, does your mom have it? And I said, well, she's never been diagnosed, but you know, I like rattled off all of my mom's like cycle history. She's like, well, if your mom doesn't have it, you don't have it. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. So, um, anyways. Okay. So 
This was so helpful and informative. And I know like I did put a question box out on Instagram and we covered so many things that I'm pretty sure we'll just like answer everyone's questions and stuff. But specifically about pain, because I know this can be, um, you know, pain, even if you don't have endometriosis, a lot of women experience pretty intense menstrual pain, um, menstrual cramps and stuff. So I'm curious, like what, when you are bleeding, when you're on your period, um, is your pain at this point, like so bad that you're taking something to kind of relieve yourself of that pain or what works for you? I have always found that Motrin is the most helpful for me. Um, I've tried a couple different and that's just the one that I've found. So I would say try a couple different pain relievers to see what's going to work best for your body. You know, we are all different. And other than that, um, I have one of the get some days that's the brand it's a heat pack, but it has like a special shape and it has a little like Sherpa fleece and it's super cozy and it has like flaxseed and chamomile, I think in it, but one of my friends gifted it pre-op and it's my favorite. So I recommend those and just heat packs in general. Um, I have never been somebody that uses a lot of over-the-counter pain medication, even pre-op because of all of my digestive symptoms, it just ruins me. And so at this point, I really only would take it the day that my cycle starts, unless something is going on when I'm out in the woods, because some of my hikes, I'm out there for a half of a day or more. And if I'm having, especially like bladder, like symptoms or that back pain, I just need it. And so I'll take a Motrin or two and that does it to the level that I can then tolerate it. But I would say that's kind of been consistent across the board, just because I'm not somebody who typically opts toward taking that just based on my like GI stuff. Yeah. And that makes sense. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything. Do you feel like we covered everything? Are we missing anything? (laughs) I feel like we covered it. I'm sure we could go down many more rabbit holes in every area of this, but it's a good Good starter. Start for our listeners. So thank you so much, Sarah. I enjoyed having you on. I can't believe this is just your first time coming on the show, to be honest. I know. Thanks for having me. It's been really nice to talk to you and see you uh, virtually. I know. And, you know, if we put this podcast episode out into the world and we get a ton of endo related questions, we can just do a part two. (laughs) That would be lovely. 